I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with scholars working in the field. Uh, with us today is Alex Thurston. He's a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center and a teacher in the African Studies uh, program at Georgetown University. And he's the author of a new book, Boko Haram, The History of an African Jihadist Movement. Uh, Alex is also the author of a previous book, Salafism in Nigeria, that came out a couple years ago with Cambridge. And uh, he is a recipient of the inaugural class of the ACLS Loose Religion uh, Journalism and International Affairs Fellowship. Uh, Alex, uh, welcome to Maps. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. So this new book, uh, Boko Haram, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, about this book. What were you trying to do when you wrote this book, and what do you think the major contributions of the book are? So this is my attempt at a, a documentary history of Boko Haram to try to draw on especially diverse written sources to reconstruct the trajectory of the movement um, from the time when the founders were growing up in Nigeria in the 1970s up to you know, as close to the present as it was possible to get. I think some of the main contributions of the book are, one, trying to get to a, a greater level of detail with the early history of the movement than has been seen so far. Um, and then second, to try to balance some of the internal sources of the movement, the propaganda, the manifesto, etc., with some of the countertexts and some of the other coverage in order to try to get a more three-dimensional uh, picture of, of how it evolved. And it, it's really interesting to me reading this, uh, getting a sense of, of how far Boko Haram came from its original roots to what uh, I think people in the West uh, first encountered with, uh, with the Bring Back Our Girls and, the, and, and this kind of really extreme stuff. Let's go back to the early period um, and where Boko Haram actually comes from. Um, and, and you have this very interesting chapter in the book where you describe how it's rooted in some of the, uh, the kind of the mainstream politics in northern Nigeria at the time. So tell us a little bit about uh, about the roots of Boko Haram. Yeah, this was this was one place where I I tried to be very careful in the book and where I tried to where I want to be careful here because there is significant overlap between you know, Boko Haram and, and some of the mainstream forces in northern Nigerian society and northern Nigerian politics. But uh, that overlap, of course, has receded in recent years, and some of the actors with whom Boko Haram initially shared some ideas have all condemned the movement. And so, you know, I don't want to sort of say that because there was that initial overlap that other people are responsible or, or complicit in Boko Haram's violence. But at the beginning, you know, in the early 2000s, we can say there were a couple of you know, forces that indirectly contributed to the rise of Boko Haram. One was the mainstream Salafi movement in Nigeria. So these are people who are not jihadists, who, who don't endorse the, the overthrow of the secular state as Boko Haram does, but they provided a set of, um, you know, rhetorical styles. They provided an infrastructure of, you know, mosques and, and teaching circles and so forth that the founders of Boko Haram were able to use to aid in their initial rise. The second kind of force that's worth highlighting is just northern Nigerian politics and especially the movement to implement Sharia in northern states between 1999 and especially 2003. Uh, that was a context where Muhammad Yusuf, the founder of Boko Haram, had some of his first opportunities to really come to, to prominence as a public figure. So he served on 
a committee to implement Sharia in his, his home state of Borno, uh, and he also, you know, was able to um, most likely uh, benefit from an alliance with, with an electoral candidate in, in the 2003 gubernatorial election in his home state. Now, when, you t- when you say uh, the, the campaigns to implement Sharia, uh, what is the background of this? Why, why is this an important feature of northern Nigerian politics at this time? So, I mean, this is one of the most important developments in, in northern Nigeria in, in post-colonial times. Uh, one thing that's worth mentioning first is that Nigeria, much like the United States, has a federal system which gives considerable power to, to state governments. Uh, also worth mentioning is that at independence in, in 1960, there were considerable divisions, cultural divisions, political divisions, historical divisions between northern and southern Nigeria. At that point, northern leaders made essentially a compromise with their southern counterparts that the scope of Sharia would be restricted to family matters, personal status issues, divorce, inheritance, etc. In 1999, when Nigeria returned to civilian multi-party democracy, there was a major call in the north for the application of what people called full Sharia, so Sharia including you know, criminal penalties and so forth, um, there was a major call for that at the state level. And so between 1999 and 2003 especially, there were, um, you know, uh, codes promulgated in different northern states to, to try to achieve that goal. And it had mass popular support and a lot of support from scholars and so forth. And one of the points you make is that uh, kind of religious ideas were in wide circulation around this time, that this was not something which was uh, on the margins Definitely, definitely. And another point that, that I, you know, try to make in the book, too, is, is that, you know, from the 1980s onward, there had been real skepticism about the value of, of Western-style education and about the moral effects of that. So in the early 2000s, when, you know, Muhammad Yusuf and, and other people around him were coming to prominence, um, by calling for Sharia, by, you know, attacking Western-style education, they were not completely out of the mainstream, um, and again, you know, the implementation of Sharia, and especially uh, the creation of all kinds of committees and public fora and other things in the states gave opportunities to people like Yusuf to um, to have maybe more of a platform than they would have otherwise. You describe it in, in, the, in the early days, you describe Boko Haram as a mosque-based movement, not a movement-based movement. Um, or it's mosque-based, not movement-based. So what do you mean by that? So... You know, as I mentioned before, the the Salafi movement in, in Nigeria, and maybe to some extent around the world, you know, often conceives of itself as an educational movement, you know, a movement that's going to teach certain books to people, that's going to teach people how to think about Islam in a certain way. So across the north, you know, at this time, there were all kinds of study circles, uh, especially in mosques. So Yusuf came up as part of that, you know, somebody who would teach different books. Uh, you know, and so in the early 2000s when he was... Uh, most likely kicked out of, of various mosques, he ended up establishing his own network of mosques in the city of Maiduguri in northeastern Nigeria. Those became centers for him to teach, but also for him to distribute, you know, microcredit schemes and, and other things like that. And this eventually kind of rallied a mass audience of people around him. So it wasn't necessarily that people were getting, you know, uh, membership cards and so forth, but but just that there was this network of places where you could come and... and mm-hmm either study or receive a loan or, you know, have some other form of contact with him. 
So how does this then, what sounds like a relatively mainstream uh, you know, movement, set of ideas and figures, how does it turn to violence? So, you know, one argument that I make in the book is that Yusuf was pulled in, in at least three different directions at the same time. Um, one, he had this major attachment to the mainstream Salafi movement. Two, he had these kind of political ambitions and, and contact with political elites in his state. But third, from an early point, there was a group of very hardline people around him. And so for a time in his career, he was able to try to balance between those. But even from, from 2003 on, we see some of those hardliners possibly breaking with Yusuf, but in any case, going to you know rural northeastern Nigeria, establishing... Uh, a community that may or may not have been a jihadist training camp and, and quickly clashing with authorities. So from an early point, there was uh, a segment of you know, people around him who wanted to engage in jihad, who wanted to engage in violence. Uh, and eventually he was no longer able to balance between those different forces. In particular, you know, the way that he tried to distinguish himself through preaching was by adopting these two signature stances. So his opposition to Western-style schooling and his opposition to, to secular government, and especially to Muslims working for a secular government. Those two stances really introduced tension between him and his mentors in the mainstream Salafi movement. And so they started to distance themselves from him, first by trying to get him to abandon those stances, but eventually by speaking out against him in public and denouncing him and saying that you know, he didn't know what he was talking about and wasn't credible. So over time, he found, you know, that his mainstream Salafi mentors and his political allies were were abandoning him, and that left him, I think, with the, you know, with the hardliners, and and ended up, you know, pushing the movement toward violence. So when it goes towards violence, um, it ends up just to jump forward a little bit. It ends up where Muhammad Yusuf ends up being killed by the Nigerian security forces. And uh, and this is something which I think from the point of view of thinking about counterinsurgency or thinking about how you deal with movements like this, you know, this is a pretty clear example of, uh, of decapitation, right? You kill the leader of the movement uh, through the application of, you know, pretty extreme force. And what happens? How does that affect the movement? Yeah, so, I mean, one thing to say is that, you know, by, by the end of his life, you know, as I said, he was really being drawn toward these hardliners, but he was also not only falling out with, with his political patrons, but directly clashing with them. So there was this crescendo of events in, in late 2008 and into the summer of 2009 where he really started to feel like they were not just abandoning him, but directly targeting him you know, and attacking his movement. So that pushed him, I think, maybe more in a reactive way than in a planned way into this disastrous and, and tragic uprising that he launched in, in July of 2009. Um, and as you mentioned, during that, um, a number of people were killed, over a thousand people killed, many of them, of course, members of the movement, some of them, uh, you know, innocent people and, and people whom Boko Haram killed as well, of course. Um, and then Yusuf was taken into custody and, and was killed quite possibly, you know, and, and I work, of course, in the book with the evidence that was available, but it seemed to me that there's a strong chance that his killing was authorized mm -hmm. by political elites, possibly all the way up to the president of Nigeria at the time. Um, in any case, the public statements that they made suggested that they thought of the problem, as you said, in terms of decapitation. I have a quotation in the book from the uh, deputy governor of Borno State at the time who said afterwards, the whole problem was Muhammad Yusuf, Muhammad Yusuf, Muhammad Yusuf. He was the kingpin. Now that he's gone, everything will go back to normal. And you have people, um, even major Muslim scholars, even you know Salafi scholars uh, weighing in and saying basically, 
you know, we're glad he's gone. This is, you know, the, the security forces handled this in the right way, and now this is going to go away. Um, and you have then, you know, a few people speaking out and saying, look, no, this is obviously, this uprising is obviously evidence of a deeper problem. This is going to be back. And those voices, of course, were correct, because what happened was, uh, first of all, with, with Yusuf gone, um, the hardliners who had been around him took control of what was left of the movement. Second, uh, people, you know, were, were extremely upset and felt that he had, you know, the people who sympathized with him and the people who had been in the movement felt that he had been, you know, uh, mistreated and, and, you know, martyred even in a sense. And then also there was, I don't think, any serious attempt by the politicians or by the security forces to, to have any kind of accountability or to really look into the, the roots of the crisis. So, you know, even by the spring of, of 2010, less than a year later, you start to have this resurgence of Boko Haram as a guerrilla movement. And then it goes very quickly towards what you call total war. And it seems like a real shift, again, in terms of what this movement is and shifting into a, a true insurgency and trying to capture territory and actually... Uh, you know, spreading into what we've come to know today. Yeah, so, you know, a few a few developments deserve mention there. One, of course, is that the, the Nigerian security forces again responded after the movement resurged with, with a very heavy-handed uh, repression, you know, that included, uh, you know, according to everything that's been, been documented and known, you know, that, that repression included systematic violations of, of human rights, including of the human rights of, of innocent people. So mass detentions, extrajudicial executions, uh, torture, uh, all kinds of, you know, collective punishment, basically, for, for young men in northeastern Nigeria. And this just fueled the conflict then? Yeah, I think so. I mean, or at the very least, you know, I think it probably pushed some people into the movement, and I think it also, you know, undermined or even destroyed the possibility of, of serious cooperation between the mass of the population and, and the authorities. You Although know, you so. also described the rise of these, like, civilian groups that uh, emerge as a counter to uh, Boko Haram. That's what I was, that's another thing I wanted to mention. So, you know, part of that seems to have been organic, but then at at the same time, or, or at least very quickly, they got significant state backing. So in a sense, I don't know, maybe the term like astroturfing isn't appropriate <laughs> in this context, but I think that, you know, it can't be, these civilian vigilantes can't be seen as a completely organic movement. So, but once you have the rise of those, in, in, especially in 2013, then they contributed to restoring security, especially in the cities, but they also pushed Boko Haram into the countryside. And as Boko Haram adapted to that, that's when it really systematically moved toward taking territory, and especially in 2014, carving out this kind of proto-state in, in northeastern Nigeria. So you get this proto-state, and one of the things which I found fascinating in the book is your point about the almost near absence of the kind of state building and Islamic governance that you see like in, in ISIS or in comparable kinds of Islamic insurgencies, but you don't seem to see all that much in terms of the implementation of Sharia or the building of a proto-state in these territories. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there were rudimentary efforts. Uh, Voice of America has obtained a number of hours of, of internal footage, you know, that show, uh, you know, punishments being handed out and so forth. So there was Sharia at that kind of level, 
but no, from what I could tell, really state building, no institutions, no real attempt to provide services, more kind of a, a predation in a lot of cases, you know, destroying things, looting things, vandalizing things, uh, you know, killing people, conscripting people, forcing women to be, you know, wives and so forth, as, mm -hmm. is, as is really well known. So I, you know, I'm still thinking about that and still looking for an explanation. I think maybe one feature of that may have to do with, with the leadership of the movement, of course. I mean, you know, Abu Bakr Shakao, who took over from Yusuf, is, is, you know, from what's known about him, he seems to be a particularly kind of, uh, you know, violent person, exclusivist person, um, somebody who looks at people as either with him or against him. Also, the, you know, the movement, I think, was... Uh, maybe moving so quickly, especially in 2013, 2014, sorry, in 2015, and, and their proto-state really didn't last that long, that maybe if they had controlled territory for longer, they would have, uh, you know, tried more. But, but I think, I guess I lean more toward the explanation that the leadership cadre maybe didn't have those skills or didn't have that interest. Well, it's interesting. That actually leads to, you know, this big question about um, how... What kinds of linkages and guidance and interaction did Boko Haram's leadership have with Al-Qaeda, with ISIS? You know, were they able to learn from the experience of ISIS, or were they simply so focused on the local level that, uh, that, that didn't have much impact on them? So this is something that I, that I you know, thought about a lot with the book, and, and I tried to take a a middle path, especially with the question of, of Al-Qaeda. So, you know, excuse me. So some people have seen, some analysts have seen the movement completely as a, a puppet for Al-Qaeda or an extension of Al-Qaeda. To me, the evidence for that is, is not strong. There is some evidence of contact between Boko Haram and, and Al-Qaeda. Um, minimal, minimal contact uh, during the lifetime of Muhammad Yusuf and then some contact between Abu Bakr Shakao and Al-Qaeda's franchise in, in Northwest Africa, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb, or AQIM. Um, there have been, you know, publicly released uh, correspondence. You know, Shakao wrote a letter to, to bin Laden at one point. Shakao wrote a letter to the, uh, a letter to the leader of, of AQIM. Uh, AQIM seems to have sent them something like 200,000 euros in the spring of, of 2010, uh, you know, or maybe in, in early 2010. Uh, so there was this contact, but also from a very early point, you know, it seems that uh, the AQIM folks and, and the kind of people around Shakao who had these contacts with AQIM were, were very upset with Shakao and found him very difficult to control. So from an early point, he seems to have done what he wanted to do uh, and, and have bucked any kind of attempt to impose authority on him from the outside. In terms of ISIS, so... Uh, you know, Shakao pledged allegiance to ISIS in, in March of 2015. Uh, I think part of the reason for doing so was that they were at a particularly weak point. So they had carved out this proto-state, but then the armies, particularly of Chad and Niger, had, had invaded and had kicked them out of a bunch of places. So they were, you know, on the run. They had lost a lot of territory. I think they were looking for a rhetorical kind of um, advantage. But the the contact between you know, Boko Haram and, and ISIS, to me, seems to have been very limited. The main result of it, 
uh, came in summer of 2016 when ISIS backed a factional split that ended up empowering somebody named uh, Abu Musab al-Banawi, who may or may not be the son of Muhammad Yusuf. ISIS delegated him as their official leader of, of ISIS West Africa, uh, which was you know, a de facto demotion and rebuke of, of Shakao. But even with that, it's not clear to what extent ISIS was calling the shots versus whether ISIS was just ratifying, you know, schisms and splits that had taken place on the ground. That's the view that I incline toward more is that, hmm. you know, this was a dispute that originated locally and that ISIS was kind of helpful to the, you know, Barnawi side. Uh, but I still see ISIS's role as, as really fairly limited. I see it as a movement driven by local developments and local concerns. So when you put Boko Haram into kind of the universe of these jihadist insurgencies, you know, what do you think is really unique about it? Um, and what, where do you think it's actually comparable to whether it's ISIS or AQIM or uh, Shabab or, you know, whatever you think the, the appropriate comparisons are? You know, what kind of lessons should we draw about uh, Boko Haram that are generalizable versus what do you think is just really unique about this group and its context? I mean, three, three things that are unique or at least more pronounced with Boko Haram than with other jihadist groups that I see is one, its origins as a preaching movement, or as we were discussing earlier, kind of a mosque-based movement that did operate openly, that was to some extent part of, you know, communal life that, that um, you know, didn't necessarily start out as violent. That, to me, is different from, you know, for example, AQIM, which has its roots a long time ago in the Algerian Civil War mm-hmm. as, as a hardcore and, and, you know, militant movement from the start you know, in, in the GIA or armed Islamic group, or Shabab, you know, which started off in the early 2000s as, as you know, a, a collection of people around returnees from Afghanistan and as a militia in the Union of Islamic Courts. Um, neither of those, you know, started as this kind of mass preaching movement directly. Uh, second, there's, you know, this predation that we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. I mean, AQIM and when they had control or partial control of northern Mali in 2012, Shabab when they, you know, controlled territory. They seem to make much more of an effort to, you know, provide rudimentary services, to establish law and order, to have some kind of governance. Boko Haram seems a lot more predatory. Third, uh, there's this real emphasis that Boko Haram puts on, on opposing Western-style education. I mean, obviously you would find other jihadists agreeing with them, but... I think Boko Haram is distinctive in, in the extent to which it emphasizes that. In terms of what they share, I mean, I think one, I mean, one, one or two things that I could point out. I mean, first of all, there's the decapitation issue that we raised earlier. I mean, decapitation in my mind is, is a very poor strategy for dealing with groups like this because people can be replaced. And you hear now people saying, okay, if we could only, you know, if the Nigerian military or whoever, the U.S. military could only kill Shakao, this would get a lot better. Or if they could only kill, you know, Al-Barnawi, then this would all improve. And I think that there would be somebody to replace those figures. Um, you know, so that seems, you know, broadly applicable. I mean, even major figures who have been killed in the global jihadist movement, bin Laden, you mm-hmm. know, um, Abu Heishi in Yemen, so forth. I mean, those, those figures have been replaced at least to some extent. Another thing then is that, you know, these groups are, are just very hard to completely eradicate. You know, a proto-state, a, a territorial holding that they carve out can be broken, can be destroyed. I mean, it 
you know, it may take several years, as in the case of, of ISIS, you know, or it may take a very short time, as in the case of, you know, Boko Haram's proto-state was basically, you know, broken up by, again, the Chadian and Nigerian and, and Nigerian militaries in, in a couple of months. Um, the AQIM proto-state in northern Mali was, was destroyed in a couple of months in early 2013. But then after that, you get this long-term, mm-hmm. uh, you know, spate of, of terrorist attacks and so forth. And that's a lot harder to, to stamp out. All right. Well, we've been speaking with uh, Alex Thurston uh, of the Woodrow Wilson Center and Georgetown University, uh, author of a new book, Boko Haram, The History of an African Jihadist Movement. Uh, Alex, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.